Everybody's been enjoying our beautiful follow-ups this year. We're getting great feedback. That's our bonus series where we follow up. We go back, we check in with a bunch of the callers that we can't forget, the ones where I wonder what happened to them. And the only place you can do that is Stitcher Premium. Stitcher Premium, you can also get a whole bunch of live shows you can't hear anywhere else. You can get your episodes ad-free. And you may notice that only the past few months of episodes are available in our back catalog. Well, guess what? At Stitcher Premium, there's over 200 episodes there. All 200 So if you want to go revisit some old favorites or you're a new listener, you want to catch up, Stitcher Premium is the place to do it. Go to stitcherpremium.com, sign up with the code STORIES for a free month trial, premium listening. That's stitcherpremium.com. The promo code is STORIES. Hello to everybody in the drive-thru line. It's beautiful anonymous. One hour, one phone call. No names, no holds barred. I'd rather go one-on-one. I think it'll be more fun. And I'll get to know you, and you'll get to know me. It's beautiful, Anonymous. Welcome, everybody. My name is Chris Gethard, and I am lucky to be your host here on this show, where we use phones to remind each other that humans are alike and we empathize with each other and we consider one another's stories and it's a breath of fresh air for me and I hope it is for you as well. San Francisco, the Bay Area in general, Northern California, let's not forget this weekend we're doing a live beautiful anonymous taping as part of San Fran Sketchfest, doing a tribute to the Chris Gethard show. There are tickets still available to both. I would love it if you came out so that the crowds aren't small and pressing. Maybe I'll see you there. Have to thank the Facebook group. Last week's episode, uh, I tell you, I was very worried. We put out political stuff. Sometimes it gets divisive. Sometimes people like to, you know, people get really angry at each other. And the Facebook group, people were expressing their concerns about the political side, but more often than not, people just recommending what type of dog I should get when I move to the suburbs. Lovely people there. Also, many people volunteering. We're uh, getting all movement going for transcriptions, transcribing episodes for people who can't hear. We've been saying we're going to do it for years, and we've been slowly chipping away at it, but... uh, friend Jordan, who's the intern on the show, spearheading. We got 73 people right now volunteering to transcribe episodes. It's awesome. This week's episode, it's a tough one. A lot of mental health stuff. Uh, I'll tell you, it, it, it definitely tugged at some of, uh, some of the issues I have. I'm sure for other people out there who have had mental breaks or, or more specifically been around people who have had mental breaks, it's going to be a tough one. This caller uh, lived with someone, one of the closest people in her life, suffered one of these incidents, we get to hear about the specifics of it and how it affects those people around you when it happens. Hard to consider for someone who it's happened to, like me. Uh, I do want to say just one caveat to put out there. You will hear that uh, part of what led to this episode was a bad reaction to some medications. Totally understandable. It is an experience that happens for people. Just want to say on my end, I want to make sure that we're not demonizing medications. They have worked for me. And uh, under the care of a doctor, they might work for you. Some people will have bad reactions. Some people, it might save your lives. So didn't get a chance to state that in the call itself. Wanted to make sure I did now. That being said, this one may offer some uh, sympathy to other people out there who are suffering. So hope you get something out of this call. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. Hello? Hi. Oh my fucking god! Is this Chris? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't Holy, make it. 
oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I'm in line at Chick-fil-A to get lunch. This is amazing. <laughs> you're in line at Chick-fil-A to get lunch and you're talking to me on the phone. Now I do want to say immediately, Chick-fil-A, question, some questionable morals. I'll put it out there. I understand I know. that. Great chicken, though. Listen, Questionable I feel, morals. I feel really bad that I'm about to get some bigot chicken, but I'm real hungry, and I'm too lazy to cook. So it's just so good. Man, okay. To each their own. I mean, you're gonna t- you're gonna take some guff for it. And I'm, I know, I'm I know. S- Listen, everyone, I'm really sorry if it makes anyone feel any better. I had a long day. I'm a social worker in a high school <laughs> and a bunch of my kids were hospitalized over Christmas break and I skipped my lunch so that I can see more students. So I just really hungry and I needed to treat myself. So okay. that makes anyone feel better about my moral choices. Okay. Fair. And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I've also made it clear Chick-fil-A, not, not cool. Not cool. With- yeah, not cool Chick-fil-A. Listen, I understand. Not cool Chick-fil-A. I'm in agreement. I did tell myself that maybe in 2020, I should rethink where I am eating in alignment with my views. It's it's interesting. I just heard Cory Booker say a pretty, uh, I thought it was a pretty amazing thing. And this is certainly not a political endorsement. Booker's a Jersey guy. I like the guy. He said, he was like, I really think that... Um, Americans need to start thinking about how to be activists with the money you spend. And I think there's truth with that. Yes. I think yes. there's truth. I, I try and, yeah, for sure. Because in, in the end, you are supporting someone at the higher top and your your money is funneling to someone that maybe doesn't, you know, have the greatest viewpoint. And at the end of the day, is that where, you know, is that what streamline you want your money to be downflowing to, I guess? Yeah. And he was saying, uh, he's saying too, he's like, you know, if you really love the environment, one simple thing you can do is shop for used clothes because clothing manufacturing is just an endless use of resources when there's so much clothing already existing in the world. It's like, oh, that's a very yes. interesting thing to think about, Mr. Booker. I know. We're getting real philosophical here. We are. <laughs> Making me feel bad that Chick-fil-A is about to swipe my card. Uh, um, I also apologize in advance because I'm about to go up to the window and I hope they don't say my name. Uh, we'll bleep it. So you're in the drive-thru. Okay. Yes, I am. When I was talking to Jared, they were like, hello? Hello? Because I had just pulled up to the window and I just pretended like I couldn't hear them. <laughs> Fair. Fair. So, you know, Chick-fil-A is dealing with a lot for me today. But how are you, Chris? I'm still, sorry, I'm talking a lot and I'm so in shock that I actually got through and I'm on the line with you and I'm freaking out and I'm wishing I wasn't in this fucking Chick-fil-A line right now. Sorry, Sally. Listen, you never have to apologize for talking on this talk-based podcast. Never. True. I'm good. But how's your afternoon? Pretty good. Pretty good, I would say. Um, I got, listen, (sighs) Earwolf was out of tea today. They have to restock oh. their stuff for the uh, new year. And I, I went down and I got a tea at a place. It's not good. How do you mess up tea? That's my question. True. And what what flavor was it? Was it just Earl Grey? Regular tea. 
Oh, how do you mess up Earl Grey? Just drop, drop the bag in the hot water and let's all move on with our day. But it just tastes off. tastes funny. That's where I'm at. So in other well, words, I have very few problems in my life and uh, feel very... Besides your Earl Grey tea. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I just remind myself, on my good days, I just try to remind myself that I have a very lucky life. And I try to get in touch with it. Yeah. Definitely yeah. scared. Of, no, but I scared that World War Three is trending on Twitter. Don't love that today. Um, oh, see, this is why I don't go on Twitter. Yeah. Twitter is too scary for me. Yeah, everything is scary in this world. I can't. It, yeah, I, I. That's one social media platform that I avoid. Oh wait, I'm about to go up to the window. I am so sorry. Hi. Hi. Yes. Thank you. I'm so sorry, Chris. Damn it. You don't have to apologize to me so much as the LGBTQ community, but that's (laughs) neither here nor there. I guess you've apologized. Thank you. Uh, Okay. I'm through. Fair. Okay. Sorry about that, Chris. But I'm going to pull over so I have good service. But I was telling um, Jared on the phone that I've, you know, with 2020 and my career and like some stuff I've had happen recently in my personal life, I've just thinking, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, mental health, which you talk about a lot and how I'm, you know, kind of changing my thinking in my career path moving forward. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you met, um, based on what you mentioned, it sounds like you have quite the intense career. You mentioned you're a social worker and you work with kids and some of them have been hospitalized. I hope everybody's okay. Yeah, you know, it's. I had a feeling that this would happen, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't still, you know, hurt and affect me. Um, I try my hardest to prep all my students coming into the holidays. You know, they're excited to have off school, but there's often a downside to that that people don't talk about, that that means you're spending more time with people who are possibly triggering for you and more time just hanging out in those maybe negative family dynamics. And what does that look like for everyone? Yeah. Um, so to give some background, um, so I work for an outpatient agency that has um, a contract with the um, local school district and um a lot of schools are often requiring that schools or districts have partnerships with an outpatient mental health agency in which a clinician takes space in the school and has a caseload and they see students during the day um, like a student would go to a, um, you know, therapist and see them and have sessions and um, things of that nature. So I take space primarily in a high school. I have a caseload of about 60 kids and I just, I have a room with a phone and their schedules and I spend my whole day trying to beg teachers to let their kids out of class to come and have an individual therapy session with me. Wow. Wow. And teachers are resistant towards this. Oh my God. I get so much sass on the phone. We're working on something very important right now, which I get it. It's it's a constant balance because you know, they're aware that what I'm doing is important, but what is happening academically is also important. So I often kind of have to battle a little bit with people like, well, can you send them in 20 minutes? Can they, you know, can you just give them the worksheet for the day? What's their grade in the class? If they're doing okay, can we agree that they can be sent down? 
to my room. Um, yeah, it, it, it's hard. Sometimes at the end of the day, I'm like, look, your school that you work at agreed to this service, so, and they're on my caseload, so quite frankly, you're going to have to give them to me at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, it's, uh, I would imagine that prioritizing the health and well-being of a child is what everybody's going for just through yeah. their own lens. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that like it, it's a, a thing that exists. I think back so much to myself in high school and I'm like, wow, this service would have been amazing for myself um, me and too. a lot of other people. Oof, me too. Yeah. Right. Like just someone that I could like go and like shoot the shit with and, you know, vent about my day and then go back to class. Like that sounds pretty nice. Or someone who's going to, like, a lot of my job is also advocating with the school staff and being like, hey, this person has a lot going on in their life. So, no, they're not going to come into first period and be, like, super on the ball and functioning because I guess just got screamed at that morning. Yeah. So. (laughs) Yeah. I I do really enjoy my job. Um, it's, It's really hard sometimes. And this is kind of one of those moments coming back from winter break where I was trying to mentally prepare myself, but I was not prepared for the extent of my students that got hospitalized or utilized mobile crisis services. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Is there, um, is there an aspect with social workers? And I'm just, mm-hmm. just out of pure interest. I would imagine that hearing these stories, especially working with kids and seeing them in tough circumstances you have to develop a very thick skin to be able to m- emotionally keep going back. But is someone who has a very thick skin towards these situations the best equipped to be a social worker? In other words, does this job wear you down in a place where you almost, you know, like someone with yeah. a thick skin no, might not be able to tap into empathy as much as they did in the beginning? Yeah. It's it's so funny that you say that because I I just like I'm the kind of person I like to like write down and visualize my goals for the year. And I just had a conversation with my husband and my close friend about this. I don't necessarily have the problem with it in my job. It's more so when I leave my job and I try to live my normal life Uh, that I often find myself being very cold or a lack of empathy because I'm like, well, I'm talking to these kids about these other big problems. So, and your problem sounds really small, so get over it. Right, right. Not that harsh, but I I do find myself inadvertently just being, like, really cold to people or just, like, empathied out. Like, I'm kind of like, I'm really done for the day. So, you know, like, my husband, when you come home to tell me this story, like, sometimes I'm like, dude, you make good money, like, deal with it. And that's not always, like, that's really hard and that's, that's something I've been struggling with and trying to figure out what is the balance of that. Um, because, you know, people's problems and anxieties are relative to their life. And I don't need to always put this on this scale of like, well, this student I have is going through this, so your problem is small. Right. Right. That is a thing I've had oh. to learn as I get older is it's not a, People's problems are not a pissing contest, you know, like some, something, yeah. something that's putting pressure on an individual is putting that pressure and they deserve to sort out that pressure release 
like you said, on the scale of where they're at and what their foundation is. Yeah. Oh my That's- goodness. Sorry. That is my work phone ringing. <laughs> oh, I thought you had like gone um, and hung out in the ball pit at Chick-fil-A. Do they have that? Or is that just no. McDonald's? <laughs> Imagine, oh God, the ball pit at Chick-fil-A would be the darkest place on planet Earth. Oh God. Oh yeah, people would just like go in there to cry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be like the people that like felt really guilty about making purchases. He would yeah. just find them in the ball pit. You have to try to go. Like, I can't happy. do this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's, um, uh, but no, I was... Yeah, you're saying. Sorry, sorry. Um, So kind of what I've been struggling with and what I said on the phone before I got in the line with you. um, So I am married and my um, husband, as of, we've been together for about five years. um, And as of recently, I would say him and I have had like a really rough few years. Um, We left where we were living and where we were very comfortable and moved to the next over for me to go to grad school and um when we moved there like my husband didn't have a job um he was just kind of ending his military career and and this you know big unknown um and since then we've we've made it through and we're in a really good space now but it hasn't been without it's like very intense ups and downs and um I would say in 2019 like it my husband just started really really feeling all of the weight, especially considering that when I was in grad school, he was our main provider um, and he wasn't making um, as good of a salary as he is now. And it was just, it was all really stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, And he carries, he comes from a military family. So he carries a lot of stuff with him um, that goes into being born into a military family, how he was raised and then him going into the military himself. Um, so, you know, me being a mental health clinician, um, and being someone who utilizes, um, anti-anxiety medications, I, you know, was like, I think we need to go talk to someone. I think he would be a great candidate for meds, blah, blah, blah. And to make a long story short, um, my husband ended up having a psychotic break as a result of being prescribed meds. Ooh, that's not good. Yeah. Um, so that happened at the end of September in 2019. And it's just, it made me question everything I thought I knew. Because how can I, first off, how did I, as a mental health professional, how did I not recognize what was going on? It made me feel really stupid. Um, and then how do I move forward in my career recommending these same paths to other people knowing that my husband had a really terrible result on it. That's scary stuff. Yeah. Sorry to damper the mood. No, I mean, welcome to beautiful anonymous. That's everything's worth talking about here. Sometimes we go, uh, we go to the dark places. So a couple questions. Did your, can I ask, did your husband, did your husband, uh, see combat when he was serving? No, um, he was not deployed. He was someone who did like missions in different places. Um, so whether that be missions being that you are called to a place for a certain amount of time for a specific job. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's done missions in other countries and here in the U S. Um, but those were often like short stints of time. Right. Um, right. 
And then he spent um, like the second part of his career um, doing the reserves and, you know, kind of trying to balance being reserves and being a normal person with a full-time job as well. Right. Right. So tough questions. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I've, I've had some, you know, I've, I've put out there that I've had some incidents where I feel like I really kind of disconnected in a lot of ways, but I don't think I've ever had a full-on psychotic break. I don't think any doctor would say that. What's that, mm-hmm. what's that look like when you're, the, when you're the spouse, the person who's probably most up close and personal to that? What are the, what are the things that started happening yeah. that, that you say that you missed? I think that's a good place to pause. What are the things you miss? This will be eye-opening, I'm sure. Get that answer and more when we come back. In the meantime, check out these advertisements. With Joybird, your personal, one-of-a-kind style should match your furniture. Bring your mood boards to life with hundreds of customizable pieces and over 50 fabric and leather options, three shades of wood, and over 250 unique silhouettes from Joybird. Fabric swatch kits allow you to see and touch all of their fabrics to find the perfect choice. Tell you what, I am moving to a house instead of an apartment. Going out, got ourselves a Joybird couch, and I'll tell you why. It's not because they're an advertiser. It's because they're a good company. My wife loves their stuff. Said, we got to have this as the centerpiece of our living room. Joybird, it's no joke. Each piece is made with ultimate care and precision using real wood and responsibly sourced materials without all those harmful chemicals. Create furniture that matches your own fearless style at joybird.com slash beautiful25. See how Joybird can help make your dream space a reality today at joybird.com slash beautiful25. Go to joybird.com slash beautiful25. Receive an exclusive offer for 25% off your first order by using the code beautiful25. Thanks to all of our advertisers. Let's get back to the conversation. What are the things that started happening yeah. that, that you say that you missed? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I've been struggling with. I think anyone would blame themselves and then add in that extra layer that I am a mental health professional. Like, it's just, it made me feel like the, the shittiest person in the world, to be honest. A lot of, I struggle with a lot of self-blame and then I feel like I'm not allowed to feel bad about it because I'm not the one that experienced it. So I need to get over it. Like, it's, it's so many complicated feelings mixed into it. Um. Kind of what the, the big thing that happened that I, I look back on and I'm like, I should have known. Um, his sleeping was the big thing. My husband has always had a lot of difficulty sleeping. Um, but, you know, him and I have worked a lot through the years um, in like, you know, developing a bedtime routine. Our room is only made for sleeping, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I go to bed really early and I fall asleep very easily. So one of the things that was happening that I learned after the fact was that my husband was like staying up till all hours of the morning, kind of doing bizarre things. And then I would wake up in the morning and he would kind of pretend like everything was fine or everything would look fine from my perspective. Um, 
so in the there was kind of like a big event that happened where he he really broke if you call it that but in the couple days leading up to it i am able to look back and realize that i i didn't see some things and because they were often happening in the middle of the night when i was asleep Mm -hmm. and when you say bizarre things what's that entail um so for example so my husband still works on a military base um and so he he still interacts with military people um and like he has a government boss and for example i didn't realize this he luckily his government boss is very kind and has um dealt with ptsd like my husband ended up like calling him in the middle of the night and then not making sense um and then he also called his mom and like wasn't really making sense i guess um my husband also started like he would be like deeply perusing the internet and I think just like looking at things that weren't great for his mental health. Um, he started to become very paranoid that like people were watching him or out to get him and just, you know, watching YouTube videos and videos and stuff online that kind of confirmed that for him. Yeah. Real rabbit hole. Yes. Um, yeah, so it was it was like a lot of the media that he was consuming, we have since like cut off access to, if that makes sense, without being controlling. Like he was watching a particular show on, I don't know, HBO or Showtime or something like that, that um, was, it, it had like a lot of symbolism and stuff in it. And he was kind of starting to go like rampant with like then trying to relay that to symbolism in our own life and right. feeling like people were following him or out to get us. Right. I hear what you're saying. So like you, yeah. I don't know if this is the show. I mean, it's, I don't feel like I'm outing anybody, but like a show like true detective, I could see like, it's got all these things about conspiracies and you start to convince yourselves, Oh, those are based in reality and the reality they're based in applies directly to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a perfect example. Wow. That's really hard. And you know, it's so scary now too, because there's so many play, there's so much information at our fingertips now and there's whole worlds of information that you can dive into that you're amongst other people mm-hmm. who agree with it or see it as real and you can spend a lot of time just dwelling in places that already agree with and perpetuate and validate the things you're thinking and that's really scary all these different corners of yeah you know, the places you hear about Reddit and 4chan and all these places where you can you can find yeah. the other people who um Yeah, you have you get confirmation bias pretty instantly. Right, right. And 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 since you're just a name on a screen or sometimes just a passive reader lurking, other people aren't even it's not a community where other people can sense, oh, this person's actually under duress. I should reach out and help or explain myself more if mm-hmm. you're that's really uh it's a really scary aspect of the world right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, like all of us have our own sensitivities and, um, you know, him being sensitive to those things, I kind of didn't realize like, whoa, like these shows we're watching 
like you said, like something like True Detective or something like that, where they're talking, let's say, about government conspiracies or this, that, like, you know, that I would just consider like, oh, that's a cool, interesting show to watch. Like, I realize now he's much more sensitive to it. And maybe we need to really think through like the media that we're consuming and how that may or may not trigger one of us. Right, right. And now you said, if I, if I, I will, can I just tell you a side note? On my old TV show, which was admittedly a very crazy show, we once did a bit, yeah. our show was failing, the ratings weren't good, and Will Ferrell came on as a guest, and uh, and and he was an executive producer on our show, and the bit we did was that came on and we dressed him up as like a, a pagan priest and antlers and platform boots, and he's already this tall guy, and then I was like stripped naked and covered in blood, and the whole bit was like, we're going to do this ceremony to try to get our ratings through the roof. And I thought it was oh I thought it was pretty clearly like an over the top kind of insane comedy bit where we were very clearly stating that this was a joke. But someone on the internet found took the footage and kind of slowed it down and made it feel more sinister and creepy and said it was proof that Will Ferrell is part of like a, a cabal of Hollywood insiders. And it it got so far that they said I was a part of Pizzagate, which is this online conspiracy. Oh, I know what Pizzagate is. Yeah, I yep. barely know anything about it, but it's the thing where famously a guy like showed up at a pizza place with a gun because he thought the Clintons were like running some sort mm -hmm. of some sort of I think like underground sex trafficking ring. I'm like, yeah, they thought it was like some like pornography child sex trafficking yeah. thing at this random pizza. Palace place. <laughs> so, someone who worked on my show found this and thought it was really hilarious. And then I found the guys talking about it. I think they found it through Reddit. And then I went in with my username on Reddit, which is my name, and started posting on it and like having fun, thinking it was funny to be like, oh, yeah, me and Will Ferrell and uh, Marina Abramovich were always hanging out. And they all started saying, see, it's real, it's real. And then I was like, no, it's not. And then I deleted all my posts, and then they said, see, it's a cover-up. Now he's covering himself. I was like, wow, these people, oh my people really think that I am part of Pizzagate. This is, and I just want to go on record. I'm not part of Pizzagate. No way. I don't even really know what it is. <laughs> but it's, I've, so I've, point being, I've seen these worlds up close. Now, you said that when your husband got under real duress, if I remember it, you said that actually when he went on medication, things got worse. Yeah. Was that before yeah. he so, fell down this rabbit hole or did did everything happen then he got put on medication and it was like fuel on the fire? What was the timeline on that? It was pretty much fuel on the fire. So um, I'm sure you know this and I know this myself from like being on meds and being a clinician, you know, there is that small percentage that um, the meds can really like not agree with your brain chemistry essentially and it can have psychotic features. Um mm -hmm. And turns out my husband is one of that very small percentage of people that that happens to. That's um, brutal. Especially when you're, you're, you know, he had a lot of high hopes. I had a lot of high hopes. And that's the thing, too. Anyone that has taken mental health medication knows that there are, like, sometimes there's a waiting period. There are, there can be initial side effects that fade away. So, I interpreted some of the symptoms that he was having as initial side effects and kept cheering him on and being like, this is okay. This will disappear. Like I experienced a lot of these symptoms when I first started my meds and, you know, I'm doing great now. Um, and I just, I, it leads to me feeling really, really terrible because he looked to me so much 
to help him and supporting him. And because I said it was okay, he went along with it. Right. But you're also in a profession where I'm sure you've helped facilitate other people going on medications where it helped greatly. Yeah. And, and how, do I, how do I reason with that? And how do I continue to recommend people knowing that this happened to my husband? Right. Right. It's, it's, been, it's been really hard. Um, but going back to one of your original questions, essentially, the, I think the lack of sleep really culminated and made everything like 10 times worse. Because um, I'm sure you know and other people know when you are not getting sleep, um, that really, really fucks with your brain. Yeah. Um, and he, like, essentially when we kind of back-calculated things, he really got, like, barely 10 hours of sleep over three or four days. <clears throat> I mean, um, in which I think he was just kind of... Kind of what? Kind of what? Just, like, deepening into these, like, intense psychotic thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I know when I was at my worst, I, I think back and it's unbelievable for, like... A couple of years, I, I would I would have this problem where I was constantly waking up in a panic, thinking I was late, or that I'd slept through an alarm, and it was just con- waking up four or five times a night. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And then, so so he gets he's he's already struggling, he's already getting into this conspiracy paranoid mindset. He's not sleeping. You sense it. You go on medication, and when when you say that that sent things over the top to this point where you're scared to even recommend this to people can I know it's tough to relive can I can I ask what that looked like yeah yeah um I try and like you know almost do a little bit of a trauma narrative on myself and that the more I talk about it the less taboo it'll feel and scary it will feel Mm -hmm. um so essentially um the kind of culmination of everything that happened was it was another thing where I was asleep And, um, I woke up to him. It was like, I don't know, two, three in the morning. It was in the middle of the night. And I woke up to him, like, you know, flipping the light switch on and being like, babe, 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 wake up. I was like, what, what? And then all of a sudden he wasn't making any sense. And I, you know, I was kind of in that sleepy eyed and it was kind of like my clinical brain snapped on. And I realized very quickly that things were wrong. Mm-hmm. He wasn't making any sense. I couldn't understand, get him to say why he had woken me up, what was going on. I was like, did you ever fall asleep? No, I never fell asleep. Um, and I was like, okay. I was like, you know, I said, you're not really making sense right now. Don't worry. I think you just need some sleep. I was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. And then we're going to sit together and we're going to str- distract ourselves and we're going to fall back asleep and everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not too worried at that point. Um, essentially, in the very short time that I walked across the hall to go to the bathroom, um, my husband became paranoid that I was going to kill him. And he took off in the middle of the night with my car. Wow. Um, yeah. Um So when I kind of backtrack and trail through the night, um, in that split second, I guess he decided that I was going to kill him and he ran down the stairs, grabbed my keys, the first thing that he could find. 
and ran outside. We had street parking at the time. Um, so by the time I realized what was going on, I took off running after him. Um, but I was kind of late um, and he was visibly running away from me. Um, and of course, I couldn't find his keys. He frequently loses his keys. So that's kind of the comical piece in all of this is that he had lost his keys. And that's why he took my car because my keys were hanging up on the little key ring thing that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, so back to show his perspective, he woke up, he thought that I was trying to kill him. Um, when I got up, when he left, the dog whined because he was leaving and he took that as hearing her whine. He thought that I had killed her. And that I was going to kill him next. So that's why he took off running and took off driving in my car. Wow. So do you have to call, do you have to call 911 at that point? Do you say like my... Yeah, so it, it, it took me a while. Like I knew it was going on, but it took me a second to realize like this is really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I tried to run down after him. Like I just kind of, after I tried to run after him and he drove right past me, I was kind of stood there for a moment, frozen in panic. Like what? No, no one trains you for this. What do you do? Yeah. So, um, I ran back inside trying to find his keys to realize that I didn't know where they were. Um, so then my brain's trying to formulate what to do. Um, I did call the cops, um, and they ended up coming, um, and we're very kind. I let them know what had happened. Um, in the meantime, so his parents live um, two counties over from us, about an hour drive. So um, I was able to wake up his parents and let them know what had happened. But the whole time, it was really hard for me to explain that, like, we didn't have a fight. I wouldn't call the cops if he left in the middle of us having a fight. Like, this was much more serious than that. Mm-hmm. And people weren't understanding that that was going on. Right. They think that there's a motive. Well, that's the thing about it being driven by mental illness is the fact that this isn't driven by something logical or justifiable is the issue. That's the thing I had trouble explaining to some people in my life was people would just go, well, that doesn't, the things you're describing don't make sense. And I'd go, yeah, well, that and that yeah. and that is the issue is that I will, exactly. I will convince myself of things that aren't rooted in any foundation. And the fa- that that that's what we have to deal with, not the actual content of what I'm so upset about, the actual fact that I am unmoored from a foundation. So, yeah. So how does he uh, how does he wind up safe and sound? So I call the police. Um, I get his parents awake um, and. An important factor in this story is um, my husband is Mm -hmm. African-American. I am not. Um, And all of the dynamics that go into that and their belief as a culture, belief or non-belief as a culture in, (laughs) excuse me, mental health services and medication and things like that. And that's been a huge factor in this as well. Um, So to kind of mix in stories, essentially, um, his mom really wasn't understanding and got very mad at me initially that I called the cops. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, you know, like, why, why would you do that? He's a young black male. Like, it, it just became all sorts of convoluted. And then me trying to explain, like, we didn't get in a fight. You know us. This, that isn't 
the type of couple that we are. Like, I wouldn't call you at three in the morning if this wasn't serious. Right, right. Um, so Which... from my husband's perspective, um, he intended to drive to his parents, which I had a feeling that he would. Um, in, I was calling him and it wasn't going through, um, in the midst of him driving, he got kind of lost, um, was convinced that trucks were following him and ended up throwing his phone out the window because he thought they could hear him and track him, whoever Mm. they is. That's really scary, scary stuff that he's gone through that night. I, I have to say too, you can, from his parents' perspective, from his mom's perspective, like, I get it. I get it. You know, in 2019 and, and, you know, for a number of years now, it's, it's really built to a head. The idea of like, if you're a young black male and you're behaving erratically and you get pulled over right now, that is a scary thing for that person's parent. Like that, that is, it's, it's in the emotion of the moment, in the heat of it, it sucks that it came at, you know, came at you, but I, it's also, I understand that. I understand why you're so scared. That's, that's, this is bad for everybody. Yeah. So, um, like I said, it should have taken him maybe 40 minutes to an hour to get to his parents' house. Um, Mm -hmm. and it took him a lot longer than that. So this was just me by that point, I had found the keys to his car, but I'm paralyzed in fear because I have a feeling he might go to his parents. But what if I, what if I leave and he comes back and I'm not there? Um, his parents are up waiting. Um, so, and the, the police are continuing to call me and check on me and make sure I'm okay. Um, so essentially, eventually he did make his way to his parents. About two hours later, he showed up at his parents' house. Um, and they, they stayed awake on the phone with me. By then, they had also calmed down, and, and they understood more. They knew that he had started these new meds. Um, they didn't realize the extent to which, you know, things weren't going well. Um, so he reached his parents' house, um, and I ended up, I immediately got into his car and drove there myself. Um, from his perspective, he can't really quite figure out when he kind of came to um, he says that once he got to his parents' house and, and really saw the look of concern and realized kind of what was going on, that that he kind of was able to, like, snap out of it, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, you got to kind of rebuild everything, reconcile what just happened. Yeah. And let's pause conversation. This is an intense one. A lot of emotions, a lot of experiences. You know, I think we need to take a breath. And if we're going to do that anyway, let's get the advertisements going. Check them out. We'll be right back. Thanks again to all our sponsors. Now let's finish off the conversation. And from there, you got to kind of rebuild everything. Reconcile what just happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's been really hard on both of us and really hard on our marriage. And I think trust in general, because, you know, initially he was very, very distrustful of me. I mean, not to even discount the fact that he thought I was going to kill him. He thought I killed our dog. Right. So, you know, reasoning with that was also like, I love you and I trust you, but 
you put this on this, you put me on this medication and look what happened. Right. Um, and, and like I said, racial dynamics, like I got a lot and, and I will preface this as I'm very close with his family. I have a very good relationship with them. I consider myself so lucky to have his parents as my in-laws, but I got a lot of backlash from them about it. And it was like, they constantly wanted to talk about it. And I wanted to talk about how we could move forward for my husband and make sure he was okay. I didn't want to talk about, well, you and that white doctor put him on this medicine and they don't test the medicine on minorities and you gave him white people meds. And that, that's been really, really hard for me. Right. Wow. That is, that is one hell of a story. I've always said, <laughs> you know what? I, I've always said from, from the perspective, because I'll tell you, initially I said, well, I've never had a psychotic break, but I'll, I'll tell you, I was the person in, in, in my life where I could never sleep. I would be convinced that I, I, I wouldn't necessarily think cars would, were following me, but I would always convince myself that the cars behind me were police that were about to pull me over and I'd be driving right at the speed limit and terrified and Certainly, some things some things that rang really true to my experience, and I've always said that, um, you know, I'm very, very proud that I fought through it and that I've been vocal about the fact that I did, but I, I, I still feel a relentless amount of guilt for the people who loved me in that time and knowing how much yeah. I scared them and knowing how much, knowing how difficult I often made it for them and knowing that, Sometimes the people closest to me were the ones who were sensing something was going on and they kind of had to face my wrath a little bit because I wasn't ready to face it. So I had to kind of put a wedge there and all sorts of stuff. So I I have always um, harbored some guilt towards the people in my life who are positioned right where you are in this story. Yeah, yeah. And... I, I so appreciate you you saying that and like showing the perspective of that because for a while after and even now I feel myself just starting to get over it like maybe about a month after um, something happened in which like he had said that he was on his way home and we, we lived further from where we both worked close to each other um, so we lived further at this time and it was taking him longer and I called him and he wasn't his phone was dead and it, I just had like an immediate flashback to that night. And when he finally walked into the door, like I just, I, I was freaking out. I started screaming at him and like saying, how could you do this to me again? And just really worked myself up, which then he felt guilty, but then I felt guilty for making it about me. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's just, it's, it's been really hard, but like I said, I, I feel like I'm not allowed to have these feelings because I, I didn't go through that. So I, I, I can't feel down on myself. I can't feel guilty. Like I wasn't the one who experienced it. I also just want to say, you know, you, you said a couple of times before we got into the, the, the epic tale of, of what unfolded in your life, you, you said a couple of times of, uh, you know, feeling like because you work in the mental health field that you really beat yourself up. At one point you said, I have felt like the worst person in the world. And I just got to go on record and say, I totally understand 
that and it's it's a natural thought to have but you're not the worst person in the world and the people who there are not every I will say I've had some bad experiences just like any field but there are people who work in mental health who are people in the trenches who I think are heroes I think quietly heroes and they don't get a lot of credit necessarily and uh you know who who's to say I you know who's to say exactly what you focus on and 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 your approach and everything but I will say that uh I've always thought I've always thought that when you see people who have um you know very when when people you know tragic situations happen where people have breaks and 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 you know kill someone and things like that I've always thought man what must their what must their doctor be feeling today the guilt of that the guilt of saying I saw it up close I was the one who's aware of it we were try- I was trying to help this person who was really heading to a darker and scarier place and I couldn't do it. I couldn't pull it off, whether it was my skills or time ran out. So I can imagine, I can imagine how you're feeling, but you are trying to do good in the world. And I'm sure when you went to school to become a social worker, the aim was to do good in the world. And I'm sure when you're helping these kids, it's because you want to do right by kids and and try to make their world an easier place. And, you know, it sucks so bad that everything in your home life fell down the same track. But the fact that you've tried, you know, if you had never tried to help people and this happened, you'd feel less guilt. But I don't think the world would be better off for it. Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that. It, it It's something I struggle with because I do think because of my profession, it hasn't been as scary as it would have been, but also because of my profession, I blame myself. Of course. Of course you're going to. Of course you're going to. I get it. But I'm I'm also certain that at some point in your life, as you know, you consider to take continue to take care of yourself and as I'm sure you continue to put a lot of like thought and love towards the person in your life who you love. I'm sure that that will start to heal up because it has to, because it has to. And it's yeah. easy for me to say yeah. from the outside, but also from the outside as someone who has been through some similar stuff, I know that it does, you know, it's trite to say, but it gets better over time. People heal. Yeah, it it does. And you said, and it, you said your husband's doing, you said your husband's making a little more money. Some of that pressure has alleviated. I'm sure that's starting to help things, you know, starting to help the tide go yeah, in a different and, direction. And me, me having an income too, so yeah. that, um, cause you know, after all this as well, he was, he was very embarrassed to come back to his job. Um, he ended up taking a couple of days off. He didn't have his phone to contact his supervisor. So logistically it became a little complicated, um, and the fact that he had called his boss at one point, like leading up to, you know, the big event. Right. Um, so he was very much like, I don't want to return to work. Um, and, you know, with anyone with anxiety, you know, you want to push them an appropriate amount. So I was like, you know, I think you should. But at the end of the day, if you decided, fuck it, I want to quit, like we would be okay. Yeah. So um, we are very lucky to have that that luxury. And I'm, I'm very aware of that privilege and luxury that we do have and, you know, being able to do that if he wanted to. Yeah. 
And you said you said things have been a little tough for, I think you said a couple of years now. This incident certainly sounds like a culmination or 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 a peak of some some really tough times in your relationship. How how's he doing now? How are you guys doing together now? I would say us together, we've we've gotten a lot better. Um, you know, it, so in the midst of that, we just moved into a house. We just bought our first house. Um which is super exciting. But, an, um, so, but another you know, pressure of, situation, another thing that comes with some yeah. anxiety. Yeah. And so um, it was a new build. So, you know, when we first signed the contract for the house, it was just a piece of dirt. Um, so, you know, we were very involved along the way in the process. So I was kind of able to, to use that as like something to look forward to. Like in December, we're closing on our house and, you know, we won't. Because I, I think that was hard for him to have to, we stayed at his parents for, it happened to be a long weekend when everything happened. So we stayed at his parents' house and it was really hard for both of us to then come back to the house and, you know, where everything happened. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was a constant sore spot. So, you know, I, I tried to, we tried to utilize moving as looking forward to better things. Um, and I, I do think things have been better. Um, but also my husband lately, um, you know, everyone's kind of gone back to work this week and he's been struggling a lot and just, sorry, I'm not making sense. As time has gone on, he continues to tell me more and more of like what his thoughts were and things like that. And, um, he's been having a lot of anxiety in the mornings going to work. And he, even this morning, I woke up to him being wide awake for a couple hours at that point. And he was just like, you know, I keep trying to apply rationale to the stuff that I was thinking during that week leading up. And he was like, I just can't reason with it. And I think that's the problem. He's trying to apply logic to what he was feeling in those days leading up to it. And the thing is, is it wasn't logical. And and how yeah. do you mentally deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. I've been there. Took me years. Took me years to tell people what was going on in my head during my worst times. Took me years. And then when I did, yeah. I'm also in a profession where I get to make jokes about it. And jokes make everything mm -hmm. go down a little bit easier for myself and the people around them. Because if I can do that, it's scary, scary to face those things down. Yeah. So, you know, it's something we're, we're dealing with. Um, that, that's been another complication. I've, you know, I, I felt that I really had to tiptoe around my husband's, you know, just like making sure that I'm saying the right thing, being supportive in the most positive way. Um, after everything. So after he had his psychotic break, we, um, got an immediate appointment the next day, um, with the prescriber who obviously, you know, said like, go off the meds. Um, you know, cause I, I just had concerns making sure that we like tapered down appropriately. Yeah, of um, course. because you can have horrible reactions when you stop something, um, abruptly. So, and he was supposed to be starting therapy along with it. Um, and needless to say, he didn't feel comfortable returning there, which I totally understood. Mm -hmm. So he has not seen or had any mental health assistance since then, which has led to, you know, some inappropriate boundaries on my part of feeling like I'm constantly being my husband's therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and I recognize that that is really, really not healthy. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's been hard lately. I, you know, and 
I haven't felt comfortable saying that to him because I didn't want him to, you know, feel guilt or me to feel guilt. But in the new year, I did say to him, you know, I, I can't continue to be your therapist. This isn't healthy for our marriage. And, you know, I, I need, you know, we can find someone together and take time to find someone, but you need to be seeing them and I need to take a back seat and be your wife again. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's really hard. It's been really, really hard to how do I prioritize myself and my mental health with not constantly being his therapist and prioritizing our marriage because it's not good for, for me to feel like his patient, for me to feel like he is my patient and not my husband, but also not hurt his feelings in the process. Yeah. I mean, you, you had mentioned during the very top of the call that you've been thinking hard about some career shifts and, uh, over the past 50 minutes, I don't, I don't know if it's ever where you're like, oh yeah, that is justifiable that maybe you don't want to spend your work day in the pressure cooker of dealing with people's mental health when you've, uh, when your home life has been affected by the same exact stuff. I, I get it. I get it. My heart goes out to you. Thank you. And there's there's no solution. And does this make me want to be a social worker less? Like, God, it, it's so hard. It's so, so hard. And trying to also balance taking care of myself in the midst of this. And, you know, I haven't told a lot of people what happened out of respect for my husband. But also, when do I get to talk about it? And when do I get to share my feelings about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, in the world of addiction, there's Al-Anon, which is people who yeah. are alcoholics, but who are family members of alcoholics who have, you know, the, uh, the, the, the chaos and tumultuous, you know, that, that can leave trauma in its own right. And there's a whole group for people to sort it out. What's it been like being up close with that? It's almost a similar thing of like, there's going to be some residual damage. Being Having someone you love say, I think you were trying to kill me and you already killed our dog, that's going to leave some some scars on you as well. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's been hard. Like, I, I feel like we are in a, we're getting in a much better spot. And, you know, being in a beautiful new house has greatly helped. But I think the hardest part for me has been like, how do I see my husband as this like romantic person again? Yeah. And not someone that I feel like I have to tiptoe around and make sure he's mentally okay. And are you sleeping and are you taking your vitamins and did you eat a meal today? What did you eat? Like that's been really, really difficult um, and, and hard for us to navigate through. Um, yeah. We did. We did talk about that. We should probably also see a couple of therapists that can that help us navigate through this. Um, and how do I see my husband? And this sounds weird, but like, how do I see him as a sexual being again? And how do I see him as my husband who I find really hot and not as someone who thought I was killing them and who had a psychotic break? Yeah, that'll certainly damper the romantic mood. Yeah, I certainly do. But you know what? You know what I think about is uh, hmm. 
you sound like you're ready to fight for it. And it sounds like you really care about oh, your husband yeah. so much. And it sounds like he wants to figure out how to keep fighting too. And uh, that goes a long way. And you know what my guess is? Is that, uh, hmm. I mean, we all know. Everybody knows that when you're at the beginning of a relationship, like you said, things are hot. Hot and heavy. It's new. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to keep working hard throughout to keep finding that, right? And you go through things together and you feel stresses together and you start seeing each other at your worst. And like, you know, I fart in front of my wife now. I didn't fart in front of her for like three years. You have to work hard. You have to work <laughs> hard to keep finding that other side of it. But you know what? When you, my guess, when you go in the trenches this deep on something this difficult, but you work hard, and I bet when you come out of it and you do find that part of you where you're like, oh, wait, my husband is fucking hot. And when you get back to that place where the sexual side of it comes back to life, I bet it's going to come roaring back to life. And I bet that I bet that most married couples will not get to feel that rekindling that you will get to feel. Yeah. And I bet that's going to be awesome. Yeah. I bet you're going to have a weekend where you guys get out of town and it's some hot-ass weekend that you never forget for the rest of your <laughs> life. I bet you get that. I I hope so. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a question for you, but I want to check in. How much time do we have? We got five minutes. Oh, fuck. So... Something that's also been on my mind and I would love to hear your perspective is, you know, we're, we're getting to that age and that thought where, you know, people are starting to ask about kids and we're starting to kind of think about it. But this has obviously set us back and been really scary. And I would love to hear your perspective as someone who's, you know, had some mental health battles and has a, a new baby. Like, I'm sure you had some of those same fears. And how did you navigate that? I mean, it. It was one of the scariest conversations with myself and with my wife that I ever had. And, uh, you know, we took, a, yeah. we took this birthing class that a lot of it was about, you know, there was the birthing techniques in the room, but then a lot of it was about how it's going to adjust your life. And in, in one of the exercises, we had to sit down and say three things that we were really excited about and three things that we were really scared about. And uh, in terms of having kid, the first words out of my mouth were, I am really, really scared that I'm going to pass out my stuff to my kid. Yeah. And uh, I tell you, first of all, He's like the happiest, giggliest little guy. <laughs> and it's like, it's like every day I see it. And, uh, and it makes me happy. And, and, I'll, and I mean, beyond happy. Happy is not even the word for it. There's not a word for what it does to me when I see my son being this guy who everybody says this is one of the happiest babies I've ever been around. But I, I also tell you that, uh, I will never not be scared. I will never not be scared. Where if I ever get the sense that my kid is, you know, suffering mentally or or treading on addiction, like I think I've treaded on it a couple times, that it, it will shake me to my core. But I've also come to realize that 
I will feel a level of compassion for him if those moments come along that I think will be an asset and that he will never feel judged and he will understand that this is the thing that has happened to his dad. And when I think of it from that perspective, I feel like, you know, I came from a family that had, you know, had not had much experience with this stuff. And, you know, any experience we did have in my extended family, it was, you know, the very Catholic don't talk about it. So sometimes I feel yeah. like with Cal, like, no, we're going to talk about it. And he's going to feel comfortable talking about it. And I wonder if in some sense that might be an asset for the little guy down the line. But yeah, scared, yeah. scares me shitless. It's, scares me shitless. Yeah, and it, 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 scares, it scares me too. You know, like, I, we didn't even get into, like, my own personal life. I had a very tumultuous family stuff. I Like, I was the kid that... I see myself in these kids. I was the kid that witnessed domestic violence and got court ordered therapy and was in and out of courtrooms my whole life. And just like, um, I have my own fears just for myself. And then, you know, hope in this and, you know, always talking about like, we're going to do things differently. We're going to have like healthier patterns, but are we really like, we can say that now, but what happens when you're under the stress? Like, <sighs> it's it's really, really scary. But I also, I don't want to, you know, what's that phrase? Like the fear of yourself striking out, keep you from playing the game. Like, I don't want to decide to rule out completely of having a family because I'm so fucking scared. You can't. Because look, when you've, when you've had that, you either perpetuate the cycle or you break it. You got to commit to breaking it, right? Like, I'll tell you, I've never told my mom this. And if she's listening... I hope I hope she feels how real this is. My mom saw some alcoholism in her she was around it in her childhood. And there was mm-hmm. when I grew up there was never a drop of alcohol kept in my house. And I didn't realize how positive a thing that was for me until I went to college and started drinking and immediately realized, "Oh, I am not built for this." not built for this and but it made me sit back and reconsider my mom made sure i never had to deal with what she dealt with and i'm going to make sure that cal never has to deal with what i dealt with and you're going to make sure your kids never had to deal with what you dealt with and just this conversation shows me that you're already committed to that and doesn't that offer yeah doesn't that offer your future kids a platform that maybe you didn't have you know yeah yeah how to practice that positive reframe it's as tough. I tell all my clients. It's tough. Listen, our hour is up. This one flew by. Final question. How yes. how was how that Chick-fil-A? Or are you sitting there with some cold-ass Chick-fil-A? I am now sitting with cold Chick-fil-A because I didn't want you to hear me chomping as I ate. Well, <laughs> man, you're, you're already eating a morally reprehensible food and now it's cold too. I know. Now you're making me think I should just throw it away entirely. No, I mean, the <laughs> last thing we're going to do is give money to Chick-fil-A and not even eat it. That's the last thing. That's true. We're not That's just going to go hand them eight bucks. That's the last thing we're going to do. Listen, <laughs> you've been through a lot. 
I'm glad you're pushing through it. I hope you feel good. I hope your husband feels good. Sounds like you guys are really putting in the effort to take care of each other and take care of him. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank um, you. I, I really appreciate your time. Caller, thank you for calling in, being so honest, letting us know about some of the specifics and the scary stuff you faced, and, and letting us know about how you're doing in the midst of all of it to, to help your husband and to help yourself. I really, truly wish you the best. I know that just with the level of thought and care and love you're already putting into this, you guys are going to get through this. I can feel it in my guts, and I hope that that comes to be the case. Thank you for calling. Thank you, Jared O'Connell in the booth. Thank you, Shell Shag, for the music. ChrisGeth.com if you want to know where you can come see me in person. Hey, go to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. It helps the show when you do. We'll see you next time. Next time on Beautiful Anonymous, a really talented conversationalist just tells us what it's like to go from place to place, meeting people and doing things. I will say, I've noticed your stories seem to all, like if you were a writer, if you were a playwright, your, your stories all tend to follow a similar structure, which is you start with the where, which is a bar. And then as far as the inciting yes. incident, it's, and then the women showed up. That seems to be the, the starting point for two of your stories. Can I, tell you, can I tell you about the time I almost started an international incident? Absolutely. Okay. So, and I, I forget the year. But it, was, it was in the 2000s. That's next time on Beautiful and Honest. Have you ever needed a doctor late at night or when you're traveling? Teladoc gives you 24-7 access to board-certified doctors anytime, anywhere for non-emergency conditions. Their board-certified doctors can diagnose, treat, and prescribe medication when medically necessary. Teladoc is available through most insurance or employers at $45 or less a visit. Download the app today or visit teladoc.com stories to register today. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash stories.